Advent to just press into prayer with you guys about what's an obvious issue slash opportunity in the life of our church. So this is a normal Sunday. There's probably 25, 30 people who would call this church home who are not here today. And we've probably got 10 free seats. And there's probably 25 children, nursery workers, and moms with babies in the back. A.K.A. we're out of space. And so we are just seeking not just a solution for more seats so more people can do this Sunday thing, but we're seeking God's grace and His wisdom so that we will really wisely and strategically make use of space over the next 10 to 20 years for His glory, for the sake of the gospel just north of the city of Boston. There's multiple ways that could look. In this season of Advent, we're not only pressing into the coming of Jesus, but to God showing us grace and helping us now, how do we free up space for disciples to be made, for connections to be made, friendships to be built, leaders to be raised up, and the gospel to go out. Uh, There's no rocket science to this. We basically just bow our heads, talk to our Father, and plead with Him to be good to us. You should be praying every day in these 40 days that God would go before us in His grace. So let's do that together. Jesus, you taught us to pray. You lived your life completely dependent upon the Spirit for everything. And we, as your people, as your your church here, just one of millions, want to live like you did. Led by, fed by, discipled by, encouraged by, corrected by, shaped by your Spirit. So we turn our hearts to you in prayer. You taught us to do this. You taught us to call God Father, Daddy. You taught us that He knows what we ask for before the words come out of our mouths. You taught us that He's a good Father who would not give us a stone instead of bread. It's with hearts of faith believing you that we pray. Father, I pray that you'd give us grace, that you'd give us wisdom, that the heart of our church would not merely be about those who are here, but for those who are not yet here, not just for those who have received this gift of the gospel, but for ways that we can be your instrument to see many more come to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I pray that as we go through this month, as we make decisions about space, they would be honoring to you, that our motives would be pure, that we would be prayerful, that we would be generous that we would be selfless in building a church that can shout and say and show the good news of Jesus to our time and our place. These are the best words we can come up with, but you taught us to just keep asking, just keep seeking, just keep knocking. So here we are again today, gathered on your day, Jesus, turning to you, Father, in prayer. I pray that you would come and be merciful to us and be gracious to us and lead us for your glory. That's our prayer. We need you to answer. Amen. Amen. All right. Normally I'm hyped up and jacked when I preach. See this thing? I've been drinking this thing all morning. It's actually pretty good. You know that a drink could be $2.39? I did not know that. Um, I'm super jazzed up because we are going to have a lot of fun with this text today. So it's Christmas season. You can see that. 
We call this Advent, which means the coming or the appearing of Jesus. All month long, you guys are going to be celebrating with us, with your families, the first coming of Jesus. That day when heaven invaded earth and God, in his grace, took on flesh and became a man inside Mary's womb. That was the first coming of Jesus and in his perfect life and in his atoning death and in his vindicating resurrection, Jesus, born in this manger, secured redemption, not just for you and for me, but for the whole world, for the cosmos. All right. Oddly enough, on this first Sunday of Advent, I get to preach on the next coming of Jesus. The last time that heaven will invade earth and Jesus will show up to finish what he started and he will unite heaven and earth and he will redeem and renew and recreate you believers and me and this world permanently for good. All right, because that's our topic, that means that for the first time in a long time, we get to deal with a text that specifically hits on eschatology from the pulpit in the life of Seven Mile Road. Okay, does that word scare anybody? Jared just looked at me like, Esca what? Okay, don't be scared. Eschatology is just the $50 Scrabble word for the study of the end or the study of the last. In other words, what does this last chapter, this last page, this last scene that the Father has been writing look like when everything gets wrapped up? Okay, so before we hit this, a couple of really important things to run through with you guys. Okay, when we talk eschatology, what we're doing is looking into a really bright mist. So generally, we know what's coming. We know that the end game of the gospel is glorious. We know that Jesus wins. We know that Jesus reigns. As the last line of the text that Jeremiah read that I almost jumped out of my seat because I've been living in this thing for months now. We get to be with Jesus forever. Our eschatological future in Christ is brilliant and dazzling and glorious. But the specifics of that future are a little bit fuzzy, a little bit misty. Nobody knows exactly when, exactly how the end is going to roll. Really smart, really gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, Bible-thumping people disagree a ton about how the end is actually going to roll out. And so that's why While eschatology is an important doctrine for us to pursue in the life of our church, it's one that we call an open-handed issue in our congregation. By open-handed issue, we mean nobody is going to be chased out of here for not assenting to a specific understanding of these things. That means that we do not want you to waste anybody's time fighting with each other about this stuff. We do not want it to look like a Tiger Woods, Elon Nordegren car accident in the parking lot after church today. You with me? I don't want to see anybody getting their clubs out of their trunk and swinging them at anyone else. No rear windows smashed. Dad, that includes you on my car. There is room for strong conviction, but not for division. 
If anybody here is, has a goal that Seven Mile will wrote a, write a 42-point manifesto into our confession of faith about the end times, that's not going to happen. Okay? Good. Unity together. Unity on the essentials and liberty on the non-essentials and love and charity and selflessness in everything that we do. Okay, good. All right, second thing. We cannot get around the fact that we live in a certain culture at a certain time in a certain place. And because we are Christians living in North America in 2009, there are two opposite but equally harmful approaches to eschatological texts that you guys have necessarily inherited. Okay? There are two extremes that we want to avoid when we come to passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The first is modern skepticism. Modern skepticism thinks it is wicked smart and much too smart to believe that any ancient book like the Bible has almost anything literally truthful to say about reality at all. Okay? We now live in the scientific age, so we can dispense with all the supernatural silliness that we find on the pages of the Bible. Heaven, hell, angels, clouds, theophanies, millenniums, raptures, resurrected bodies, incarnations. Stop it. There is no sovereign, invisible, involved God. There is no supernatural. What you see and touch is all that you get, blah, blah, blah. I know that you guys have grown up around that. And so, modern skepticism would tell you the way to go to a text like this is to eliminate anything that doesn't fit in this very small box of modernity. Jesus did not rise from the dead in a redeemed body. That doesn't happen. Jesus did not ascend to the heavens. That doesn't happen. And Jesus sure as heck is not coming back from heaven. That's not going to happen. Okay, you spend two seconds in the life of our church or just reading through your Bible and you know if this thing is true just a little bit, there is way more going on in this world than fits in modernity's little box. This world is magical in some very awesome, very beautiful ways. There is more happening that meets the Darwinian eye more happening than the scientific method can kick out an equation for. We can and we should embrace texts that reveal mystery and divinity and eternity. And I'm calling you to do that with me. Do not buy the narrowness and the arrogance and the unbelief of modern skepticism. Let God speak and let His words shape your worldview, shape your reality shape your dreams and hopes. Okay. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum from that, but also dangerous, is coming to these texts in the Bible with straight-up, flat literalism. As North American Christians in 2009, we have had this other interpretive approach that's become very popular with us. It was made wicked famous in this series of movies called Left Behind. Just let me judge my audience. How many people have seen or read something called Left Behind? All right, only in a church would I get that. Okay, so insisting that biblical texts on the end times need to be interpreted with flat literalism. What I mean is you say, I'm going to take every word that I read in the Bible, I'm going to ignore its context, 
I'm going to ignore its genre. I'm going to ignore its literary form. I'm going to ignore the other texts of Scripture that are saying the same thing, but choose to say it in different ways and let the texts round out my understanding. I'm not going to do any of that. And I'm just going to go hardcore, straight, literal in my interpretation of the text. And then worse than that, we take all these literal dots and we try and connect them and put together a big flannel graph timeline with seven-headed beasts and Babylonian whores across the front of the church and say that's the way it's got to happen because that's exactly how that text sounds to me. Okay? All right. That flat literalism is not the way that we want to go with these kind of texts. Remember our bright mist analogy? The future is bright but it's, it's like a mist that we're headed for. Eschatological language, like the one in this text, they're like sign points or signposts pointing into the mist. In other words, here's what we've got going on. When we're looking at the end times and how this whole thing racks up, we are trying to give expression to inexpressibly glorious stuff. And our words always fall short of the reality that they're pointing to. Human language cannot say, oh, you try to, but it can't say what needs to be said. And so these inspired writers are doing the best they can with the words they have, the images, the metaphors, stretching them often to their very limits, trying to communicate to you the glories of what is to come. But those words don't mean that they match exactly how it's going to flow. All right, let me give you an example. Joe's looking at me crazy. Here we go. Let's say you went to a concert, okay? And it was off the hook. Where do you guys go? I don't know. DC Talk, Shane and Shane, Jars of Clay. This is a church. I'm going to the Run DMC reunion. That's where I'm going. I know J Master J died a few years ago. It wouldn't be the same, but still. You get back from the concert that you went to. That was crazy. And what do you tell your friends? You might say, it was sick. They just killed it. It was electrifying. The house was rocking. Everyone was going insane. The DJ was scratching up a storm. What am I doing there? I'm trying to express to you in words this thing that I can't give you words for. Now, if you went flat literal with me, you would say, oh, people got sick. There was electricity involved. You were at a house, there was rain, everyone lost their, their minds, stretchers, straitjackets. No, you don't take those words trying to point to this reality and make them fit literally. Same thing with apocalyptic language in the Bible. Daniel, Revelation, Second Peter, the Gospels, First Thessalonians. We don't have words to express these infinitely glorious realities. And the words that we do have available to us are the ones that we use to try and communicate what's going on. The words are signposts pointing to something way deeper and richer and bigger than just the words themselves. And so we don't want to hear these words in a narrow, flat, literal way. We want to hear them in a deeper, more rich, meaningful way as signs pointing to a reality that we can't even express. Okay, that's like my intro. We're going to be here a long time today. That's why I've been drinking Monster all morning. All right, all that in mind, let me read this text to you again. And now let's allow the scripture to speak to us and give us a glimpse into the unspeakable glories of when Jesus comes back. Here we go. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers 
about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay. So we're working through the biblical book that is called 1 Thessalonians. It's actually a letter written to a church just like this by the guy who had planted the church. Here's what had happened. One day a church planting team with at least Paul and Silas and Timothy arrived in the city of Thessalonica and started preaching the gospel. They started telling people there that Jesus from Nazareth the rabbi, miracle-working teacher, was even more than that, he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And that he had been crucified on a cross in their place for their sins. And then to everyone's surprise, he was put in a tomb, but he rose again bodily from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. And that he ascended to his rightful place, heaven, where all authority over heaven and earth had been given to him. And that one day, this Jesus would return and he would finish what was started in his resurrection by renewing and reviving and recreating all things and finally uniting heaven and earth. Jesus' resurrection was the beginning of of this new life that was coming for the cosmos. You know, like fresh, bright green grass that grows up out of concrete? The resurrection was like that grass, and when the work of the resurrection was final, no more concrete, only life. In a burst of God's creative energy, for which Easter and the empty tomb was what, the prototype or the first fruits or the example, Jesus is going to come He's going to recreate your body, and He's going to recreate and redeem all things. All right, a bunch of people heard that gospel, and they believed it, and they were saved, and they became a church, and they were living life together like we're living life together in response to this grace of the gospel, and they were anxiously awaiting the return of Christ. They could taste it. They could taste it. They would wake up and be like, man, today is the day Jesus is coming to do everything Paul declared to us. Finally, visibly, he's going to come make all things right. They knew that day was coming, and they could not wait for the appearing of their Savior. We hear this in one of the early Christian prayers that we have in Aramaic. That's how we know it's really early. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. 
In other words, come on, Jesus, come. Unite heaven and earth. Bring your kingdom fully loaded. We want to be with you. We want to welcome you. We want to shout your praise. We want you to bring resurrection to everything. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That was a prayer of the early church. But then something happened that this church did not expect and did not know how to handle. This is our rotary image, right? Chaos. Church member got beat up, dragged in front of the authorities, and embarrassed for confessing Christ. Their pastors got chased out of town in the middle of the night, and their fellow countrymen began to afflict them and to persecute them. And Jesus didn't come back. Some time went by, and what happened was some of their number died. Can't really tell if it was definitely through martyrdom or if it was just that a few months had come by and some of those folks died. It's probably a combination of both of those. But this church had to bury some of their brothers and sisters before Jesus returned like Paul had preached to them. Their friends didn't live long enough to experience the coming of Christ. Paul eventually ends up sending Timothy to see how they're doing. When Timothy gets back with his report, this is what he says. He says, Paul, their faith is strong. They haven't given up. Their love is crazy. It's just beautiful. But there is a deep sadness in the life of this church. I I visited Thessalonica. I saw a lot of red eyes. They have cried a bunch of tears. It's like death is the watchword over this church right now. And they don't know what to do with that. We, we got chased out of town so fast that we didn't have time to teach them about the fate of the Christian dead. They, they don't know how those who died, are, are they going to miss out when Jesus comes back? They're, they're confused. They're uncertain. They're despairing. They're without hope. They're really down about those who have died. Their souls are torn up about this whole thing. So it's into that sadness and confusion and despair that the words that we're learning together today were written. All right, now let's hear them. Writes to that and he says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. So he says, look, I am sorry I didn't get to teach you everything that I wanted to. I got chased out of town. I never got to talk about the hope for those who die before the coming of Jesus. I'm sorry about that. I'm so sorry that it's caused you so much angst. But I'm going to fill you in right now in this letter. And I have good news. You, Christians, have way more hope than the others. Others there would be a reference to the other Thessalonians in the city where they lived, who were a Greek and a pagan people. If you were Greek, pagan at the time, and somebody that you loved died, it was heartbreaking because your view of the afterlife negated any hope of you ever being restored to them again. It was over. There was no resurrection in pagan thought. Uh, the Greeks believed in the immortality of the soul, right? 
But resurrection to them would have been just confusing. You mean like a zombie movie? Corpses coming out and walking around? What, what is resurrection? Bodies don't come back from the dead. In the Greco-Roman world, when you died, your spirit would go into that underworld, gray, misty, dark. You guys did a seventh grade mythology unit, right? The river sticks, and then you had to avoid the dog at the end there to pass and keep going. If you read the inscriptions in pagan tombs, oh, it was depressing. There was no coming back, no being reunited. You were done. Theocritus says like this, Hope is for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. And Homer says it like this, The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. That was their world, and Paul says this to them. That is not you anymore. We face death, not with the grieving, gloomy despair, but with a triumphant hope. Why? Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We have faith, we have hope, even in the face of death. Why? Because we serve a Lord who died and rose again. Do you guys see how the gospel is the center of all of our hopes. You guys see how what happened on Easter changes everything? You see why I'm always yelling red-faced about the empty tomb? Death is not the final word. We believe that death was swallowed up by life in that garden once in the first coming of Christ. And so we believe that death will be swallowed up for good in the final coming of Christ. When God the Father brings God the Son, those who have died, what? They are coming with Him. Those who are still breathing on that day will not precede, will not have an advantage, will not get a head start on those who have died. Uh Uh-uh. All the saints, whether buried or living and breathing, are going to participate equally. Okay. Can you imagine what a comfort that would have been to this red-eyed, grieving Thessalonian church? I know your friends are dead. I-, I get it, and I am sorry. I know that you miss them, but I've got great news. They will not miss Jesus. Neither the dead nor the living have an advantage in that day. We're all going to be there together at the coming of Christ. All right, now let's talk about that word coming. Remember, eschatology, what do we have going on here? Human words, signposts, pointing to the unwordable, glorious future things. Okay, so Paul needs a word to try and describe to these Thessalonians this final, apocalyptic, end of all things, Terminator 4, coming of Christ. 
when heaven and earth are united forever. And the word that he chooses to point to that reality for you guys is parousia. All right. Parousia literally means a coming or an appearing or a presence. And that word had two really lively meanings when Paul was writing these words. Here's the first one. It was a religious expression. They would use it for the coming or the appearing of a hidden divinity that would make his or her presence known by a revelation of their power. So it was like there was this mysterious presence of a God who would be revealed in a healing or in a sign, and you would be suddenly made aware of the reality of that presence. That was parousia. Every Thessalonian would have had that in mind. Second, lively meaning of this word. Imperial, empire language. When a king or an emperor would come and visit a colony or a province. All right? The the, the great one comes to the lowly place. So this is like Garth Brooks coming to Jacob's house. Wow. See that? Okay, the excitement that would be there. So this is like if Caesar from almighty Rome comes and makes an appearance or a visit to Thessalonica. A coming or an appearing of the king. That was what? That was a parousia. Can you see now why Paul goes for this word and he says, at the coming of Jesus, it's the perfect word. If you were trying to convey to these Thessalonians that Jesus, who is present among you now in spirit, invisible, through word and sacrament, is one day and and is unknown to everyone else, right? Nobody can see Jesus right now. But one day he's going to come back. And he's going to appear in a way that everybody's going to know about it. Transforming, sudden, almost violent appearing of Jesus for all eyes to see, all ears to hear. What word do you go for? Parousia. And if you were trying to convey that Jesus, who is the rightful Lord of heaven and earth, before whom every other ruler, including the Caesar, trembles... Every molecule obeys. He's going to come make an appearance on earth. What word would you choose? Parousia. That's what he says. Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to be revealed. The king is coming. He's showing up. A divinity arriving on the scene. That's the day that's coming. All right, the question you've all been waiting for. Now, what is that parousia going to look like? What is that appearing of the divine king coming going to feel like? All right, let's hear this text again and we'll see what we've got. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Mm. All right, some key essentials in this text. The first thing we got to get down, here we go. Jesus is coming to earth. The key movement here is not us flying upwards to heaven. 
The key movement here is heaven coming earthwards. Okay, let's spend some time on this idea because we get wicked tripped up when we try and think about how heaven and earth relate to each other. All right, for some reason, we uh, post-enlightenment Westerners think of it like this. Earth, the messed up physical place that we live and breathe in, is down here. And heaven, the glorious spiritual place where God lives, is up from earth, up here. Um, If you go far enough above the clouds, eventually you get to heaven. And God is there somehow. So if you could just put enough gas and food on a space shuttle and then wait until the earth's rotation hit just the right point and take off from there, you'd go past Pluto, you'd keep going, and eventually it's heaven somewhere way out there in the cosmos. Past Pluto, you get to the place that Isaiah saw with the cherubim and the seraphim, and there's the throne room of God, right? In other words, we think earth and heaven are two different locations, but in the same world or in the same cosmos somehow. One is close and down. The other is far and up. A perfect example of this is our narrow understanding of the ascension of Jesus Uh, I think that word ascension trips us up. I swear to you, whenever I hear the ascension of Jesus, I think of two people, E.T. and Bobo Fett. I don't know why. Those are the two that come to mind for me. You know, E.T., at the end of the movie, his heart's beating, and his spaceship leaves Earth, and it goes up, 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 up through the clouds, and eventually it gets to E.T.'s world, which is like heaven. Or you guys have seen Bobo Fett, right? He's got the jetpack on. He hits that thing, and he takes straight up off the ground. How does he turn that thing on? I've always wondered that, because his hands are out. I don't know. Switch, lever, something. This is what we picture happening with Jesus. After all, earth is down, heaven is up, and so ascension means vertical jetpack takeoff. That's not what ascension means. Ascension means the exalting or the restoring of Jesus to his rightful place as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, at the right hand of the Father, in heaven, ruling heaven and earth. But that doesn't necessarily mean Jesus going like a rocket straight up to get there. It's not up and down. We should get this from the story of Christmas, right? When Jesus first came to heaven, he didn't drop out of the sky like E.T. When he came from heaven into earth, it was how? It was in the womb of a a 16-year-old Jewish girl. That wasn't up or down. What was going on there? That was possible because heaven and earth are not two different places in the same world. You know, like Philly and New York, or like Earth and Pluto, or our star and some star in the Orion constellation. Heaven and earth are to be understood biblically as two different cosmoses. Two different of what we would call spaces. Two different what we would call matters. Probably, for you Star Trek people, two different what we would call times. Different. And so heaven is not up and far. It's different. And in fact, it's really close. There are myriads of ways that the reality of heaven intersects with the reality of our cosmos or of our earth. Heaven is not far. You don't have to go up to get there. Heaven is close. It's just that it's, 
It's different. And so what's going to happen at the final coming of Christ is not that we're going to fly up, up, and away off of this wicked earth to go live in heaven with Jesus far away forever. What's going to happen is Jesus is going to bring heaven to earth. He's going to unite the realities of heaven. He's going to redeem and recreate and renew earth. And the two will become one. What right now just intersects will be fully integrated right here. That's what we are waiting for. Justin's buddy in Arkansas at raptureready.com, he has this line on his website. Love this guy, but this line is just, it's not right. The rapture is an event that will take place sometime in the future. Jesus will come in the air, catch up the church from the earth. I'm cool with all this so far. And then return to heaven with the church. That's not it, you guys. Even in this text. When Jesus comes, he is coming here. Heaven is coming here. He is bringing heaven with him. He is setting up his eternal reign in a united heavens and earth. All right, chew on that one. We'll keep going. All right, words. If you were Paul and you had to get words to describe this indescribable uniting of heaven and earth, where are you going to go to find a way to talk about what's going to happen here? Throwing heaven wide open, renewing all things, this whole earth being changed suddenly, publicly, for everyone to see and know. Earth-shattering redemption of the cosmos. You see how I'm struggling with to come up with words? Here's what we've got in this text. The Lord himself descending from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. In other words, what? When Jesus comes and wraps this whole thing up, it is going to be public. It is going to be loud. I'm talking Julia loud. Think of like a fire alarm. Okay, you guys went to school. You were in school when either some punk pulled the fire alarm or they were doing the tests. What happens there? It doesn't matter whether you're in the gym, in the classroom, in the bathroom, smoking a cigarette in that hallway where you can go smoke. Wait a minute, that was 1988 at Medford High? Wherever you are on campus, when that fire alarm goes off, what happens? Everybody knows fire alarm is going off. That's the same kind of thing that is coming with Jesus. There is a day coming when everything will stop and all of this creation and this world will recognize that the King has arrived and redemption has come. Archangels shouting, trumpets of God pealing, voice of command. Wow! Public and loud on that day. And if you were Paul and you were trying hard to find a word to describe what we who have anxiously awaited that day, come Lord Jesus, if you needed a word to describe how we will respond when that day comes, where would you go for that word? How would you describe that thing? He goes to the word apentison which literally means a royal welcome. This word was translated pathetically in your Bible as meet the Lord, right? We, dead or alive, will be changed and transformed and we're going to meet the Lord. 
Man, that is a flat word for this idea. Appentison means this, a royal welcome. It was used to describe what I did with the kids before, if you were here at that point. Um, It was used for the word to describe the scene when a greeting committee would go out from a city and escort a royal person into the city for their official visit. So just think of Eminem going back to 8 Mile, and he's in his limo. He can't even get to 6 Mile or 5 Mile with all the kids coming out of their trailer homes and banging on the windows of the limo and escorting him back to 8 Mile. We just love that stuff because of the name of our church. See how that works? I'm serious. When Julius Caesar did his victory parade through Rome, what was the word that they used to describe, hey, Caesar's almost at our city, and people would run out of the city gates to greet him and praise him and wave at him and welcome him to the place where they would get to be with him. What is that word? Meet him in English. Appentison. We cannot wait for him to come. I saw a very cool example of this with my kids when Beth and Kip came over last week to eat with us. So you guys know we live up on a hill. We can see you coming, right? I'm ready for the day when I need to be militia, man. Boom, you're not getting up that street. right? We can see you coming when you're coming to visit. Um, so Kip is at MIT studying naval architecture, but he cannot read a map. He cannot do Google Maps. You figure that one out. They're like 40 minutes late. Julia cannot wait for Lucy to come. Not because there's anything special about Lucy, but she's got the same name as Lucy from Charlie Brown, and we've never met a Lucy before. So she's anxiously awaiting the parousia of Lucy to my house. You with me? And she's looking out the window, and they're not here yet, and they're not here yet. And finally, Kip and Beth come up. You know they've been fighting, right? My map, your map, GPS. So they get there. All right. What does Julia, who's been anxiously awaiting the arrival of Lucy, do? She throws the door of our house open. She runs down the steps and she greets them at their car. And then she walks back up the steps with them into our house so that we can sit down and share a meal with Lucy. Okay? That is the idea that's going on in this. The dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive, who are left, will be seized, caught up together with them in the clouds to appentison the Lord in the air, okay? Well, the point wasn't really whether Julia ran down the steps to greet them or flew down the steps to greet them, was it? What was the point of my story? That Julia couldn't wait for their arrival, and Julia wasn't flying down to get in their car and then go off to their home somewhere. She was meeting them to bring them to be in our living room with us, okay? Now, saying all that, I am not ruling out the possibility that when Jesus intersects heaven and earth and trumpets and angels and all this madness, that we are going to jetpack it up in our resurrected bodies and meet him somewhere in the atmosphere and welcome him as he comes back down to the earth. I don't have a clue what our resurrected bodies are going to be capable of. I have always wanted to touch the top of the backboard or at least like put a penny up there. I, well, I would love jetpacking it up at the coming of Christ. I'm fine with that. It might mean that. It might not. But the point is what? Jesus is returning to earth. He's bringing heaven with him. All things are going to be made new. Our bodies are going to be made new. 
And here it is, insane, the last part of the text. Therefore, uh, we will always be with the Lord. So the point of this whole passage is not figuring out jetpack, no jetpack, clouds, Jesus. Is it in Jerusalem? Is it in Australia? How's that whole thing going to happen? I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm just giving you the words that Paul gave us. But I do know this. When Jesus comes, and I cannot wait, when he comes to put a bow on all things and fully redeem your body, my body, the whole cosmos, the dead in Christ will be given new bodies. If you're still living and breathing when he comes, you're going to be changed in an instant. And all of us, in some apocalyptic, insane, unspeakable ways, are going to go out to meet him. And we're going to bring him back with us. And the major point is, he's coming to be with us. We will always be with the Lord. And in the greatest understatement of the Bible, Paul says, Therefore... Encourage one another with these words. (laughs) Like he needed to say that. These Thessalonians did not have to despair that this rotary had taken the lives of some of their brothers or their sisters in Christ. And all of us who live in Christ, whether we live to the day that he comes or we die long before that, we do not need to despair. Here is the Christian hope from the earliest of days. We will be with the Lord forever. Will there be any more sorrow when Jesus comes, however it looks? Will there be any more sickness? Man, in the last week, a friend of mine killed himself. Will there be any more suicide? A friend of mine had brain surgery. Will there be any more brain surgery? A friend of mine's brother got beat within an inch of his life. Will there be any more gangs beating on people? Will there be any more death, pain, sin, betrayal? Will Jesus be absent? No. We will be with Jesus. He will rid this cosmos of sin. He will give us new bodies. He will reign face to face forever. You can figure out the details, but that you can take to the bank. The promise of Christ is that He's coming, He will make you new, He will make all things new. And here's my question. Do you want that day to come? I'm serious about that. Look at your heart. Do you anxiously await the coming of Christ? If I told you that Jesus was on the orange line, passing through North Station right now, coming to Malden Center, man, would you drop kick the person nearest to you, kick those doors open, do a two-minute mile to Malden Center, hop the barbed wire fence and stand on that platform waiting for him to come so you could be the first one to throw yourself at his feet with tears in your eyes and then put him on your shoulders and march him down Highland Ave back over here. Is your heart there? That day is coming, man. That day is coming, and you need to have a heart that is anxiously waiting to appentesis Jesus, to greet him, whatever that looks like, to participate in his coming, in the renewal of all things. 
Is your heart ready for that day? Is your heart ready? It's coming. It's going to be more than Paul could express. It's going to be way more than the pitiful job I just did trying to communicate these truths to you. Trust me on this one. We get to be with Jesus forever. Let's thank the Father for that truth. Father, I thank you for the Christian hope. There's a day that's drawing near when Jesus will bring heaven to earth. When he will finally, publicly, visibly, forever reign as king. Maranatha. Maranatha. Come on, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We are tired of sickness. We are tired of death. We are tired of sin. We are tired of sinful reactions in us. We are tired of broken bodies. Jesus, come. We're tired of suicide. We're tired of brain surgery. We're tired of mourning. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. And please, in your grace, would you turn the hearts of this church to be ready, to be anxious for your appearing. However, that looks inexpressible today, but glorious then. Would you please, in your grace, grow us up. Give us imagination. Give us faith to await the day that you will split the skies. That you will bring heaven to earth. That you will recreate and redeem and renew all things. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.